the purpose of life is not to slide in at the end with a well-preserved body, but to slide in saying, holy shit, what a ride. Welcome to Leaders Labyrinth. I am your host, Michael Grant. We take you on a journey with resilient individuals who share how they have achieved the extraordinary. This show is designed to empower you to take the lead in your life's quest through the wisdom of our leaders, inflicting truth, possibility, and fueling your hearts with passion of what sets your souls on fire to becoming your best version of self. Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher and scientist, once said, We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Today's leader in our labyrinth is an American business leader. He currently serves on the executive board of a Fortune 100 company at Abbott Laboratories. He served as CEO for 12 years of a Fortune 500 company at St. Jude Medical. He is also the founder of the new National Museum of Military Vehicles in Du Bois, Wyoming. It is my great honor to introduce to you, Dan Starks. Hello, Mr. Daniel Starks. Welcome to the Labyrinth. It's an honor to have you with us. We are here with Mr. Starks at his beautiful ranch in Wyoming. And uh, when you look all around here, all you see is wilderness, sky, and beauty. It's an incredible experience and place to be. So thank you for uh, hosting me and for your kind hospitality of allowing us to record here. Michael, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Fantastic. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I think a good place to start is just by educating our audience a little bit on who you are. And you're currently an executive board member for Abbott Laboratories, a Fortune 500 company. You were previously the CEO and president for St. Jude Medical from 2004 to 2016 another Fortune 500 company. Prior to that, you were the president of Day Corporation and have held executive leadership positions at several other medical device companies. And you've built an astonishing track record of leadership through growing these business operations and pursuing multiple acquisitions during your tenure. So it'd be great to learn about who is, who is Daniel Starks and um, what was that journey like, you know, achieving these types of uh, monumental um, uh, things in your career where you got to hold such great responsibility as a leader in business in the medical industry. Um, were you always interested in, in the medical industry growing up as a child? No, I wasn't. I had no interest in it. I never imagined that I would get involved in either a, bit, uh, a corporation or a medical device business. I grew up as a hippie. Uh, and uh, I was interested in social justice. I uh, went to a small liberal arts school uh, for uh, college. I majored in humanities. I decided that the humanities made it uh, made me a better citizen and uh, helped me learn how to think and communicate better, but certainly didn't qualify me for any particular job. So after college, I went to law school. I became a lawyer. I uh, practiced law for six years, and during that period of time, one of my clients uh, uh, came to ask me to help him with a personal bankruptcy. It turned out that he was an engineer who had started a medical device business. His medical device business, when he and I met, was in bankruptcy. 
Uh, as he and I developed a relationship, he invited me to join his bankrupt medical device business, leave my profitable law partnership. Uh, at first, I didn't take it seriously at all. I was like, what am I going to leave? A, I've invested in my law partnership. I've got a client base, uh, uh, and I'm making money. Why would I go to a bankrupt uh, business I know nothing about? I told him I was flattered. He invited me, and thank you, but no thanks. However, as I... Uh, uh, continued to develop a relationship with him. I became familiar with his uh, company. I became uh, his company was a cardiovascular medical device business, and so I started to become familiar with cardiovascular medical technology. I started to become familiar with the cardiologist client uh, customer base that his company worked with. I found both of those areas to be intriguing. I started to become familiar with some of the talent that was in his business. I found them to be sharp and motivated people. And so after six years, his company was still in bankruptcy and I decided to leave my profitable law partnership and take the plunge and join his bankrupt business. I knew nothing about uh, medical devices. I knew nothing about manufacturing. I knew nothing about product development. I was a lawyer as I started out uh, for the first uh, year as general counsel for the bankrupt business working to uh, help the company get out of this bankruptcy situation. I was successful in helping do that. Uh, after we came out of bankruptcy, I became the president of that business. I was president of that business for 10 years. During that 10 years, uh, we converted ourselves from an, a, uh, a company that uh, had a negative net worth to being uh, uh, one of the fastest growing small uh, companies, uh, public companies in the United States. We developed innovative technology. Uh, during the 10 years or so that I was president of the business, uh, we, we were a public company, local over-the-counter public company. Uh, 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 at one point, our stock was trading as low as 25 cents a share. Uh, when we, um, uh, in 1996, when we sold ourselves to St. Jude Medical, we sold ourselves uh, at a stock price of $44 a share. Uh, but that was after four two-for-one stock splits. At one point, I did the math, and the uh, the uh, return to shareholders who purchased the stock at 25 cents a share and then had four two-for-one stock splits and sold their stock at $44 a share was about an 80,000% return. So I was the uh, second largest shareholder of the of that company, Dig, and that... that um, success made me independently wealthy. When we uh, sold ourselves to St. Jude Medical, a larger uh, medical device, a larger, more diversified medical device company, my plan was to retire uh, at, there in 1996. I committed to, uh, to uh, stay on long enough to help fully transition the value of DAG to St. Jude Medical, but then I didn't need to work anymore, so I was going to retire. A short period after, uh, DAG became part of St. Jude Medical, St. Jude Medical itself became distressed, uh, and uh, um, I, was, uh, I was in a hospital in Minneapolis uh, on an IV morphine drip recovering from kidney surgery when the CEO of that business came into my hospital uh, room and talking to me in a, a morphine uh, haze, asked me if I would uh, go out to California, relocate to California because the company was, you know, in, in my words, basically falling apart and um, asked me if I would uh, see if I could help provide the leadership to turn around the largest part of St. Jude Medical that was falling apart. So I did that beginning in um, April of 1998. I, I, I went out there still recovering from 
kidney surgery. Uh, I uh, couldn't carry a briefcase uh, at that early point in my recovery, and I'm wearing sweatpants at that early point in my recovery. Uh, but um, uh, I was able to, uh, to, to learn that business and assemble a leadership team uh, to work with me to help turn around that business and turn that business into a, a very successful high growth business. Uh, uh, for a number of years running, uh, St. Jude Medical after that became uh, one of the uh, the, um, uh, I, I forget if the metric was fastest growing or if the metric was greatest return to shareholders, uh, uh, a number of, of, uh, of multi-year periods running. Uh, uh, I was uh, going to, after, after uh, helping to turn around the part of the business that was failing, then my plan was to retire. I told the company I was going to retire. Uh, uh, this was in uh, 2000. I think, what was this? This was 2001. And um, they asked me instead uh, to become president of the entire global business. I decided to do that. And uh, three years later, I became chairman, president, and CEO of the entire global business. That was 1994. Then from 1994 to, uh, to uh, really to uh, 2016, I stayed in that capacity. I, then I uh, became executive chairman of the business. Uh, ultimately uh, leading to our becoming part of Abbott Laboratories in January of 2017. All in all, uh, dur during that period with St. Jude Medical then, we had a number of two-for-one stock splits. We had uh, a very high return to shareholders, and uh, uh, we uh, became um, a, a fast-growing uh, company in a lot of different parts of our business. We developed innovative technology. We did a calculation at one point uh, that um, uh, demonstrated that we helped save a life every three seconds of every hour of every business day. We had about 28,000 employees. We had six billion in annual sales uh, and wonderful life-saving medical technology uh, uh, at a volume where we were we were helping to save a life every three seconds. Wow. There's so much information there that you just share with us and that raises so many questions and the work that you've done in the medical device industry like you said has helped save so many lives and through the expansion of that product portfolio bringing new companies into the acquisition phases has helped people have access to this technology and to these medical devices so they can survive yeah it was something yeah. we could all be passionate about i used yeah. to say to people uh i i think i could find something to be interested in if I was in a company that was generating nuclear waste, I think I could find something interesting in doing that. But there's nothing that compares and nothing that helps a person get out of bed in the morning full of energy as much as knowing that you're saving, helping to save that many lives every single day. So we all knew we were doing something good. It gave us a lot of energy. It put a lot of stress on us. Things go wrong with medical devices. Uh, we always uh, have that burden of... Uh, of uh, uh, of finding out you know, no, no products are perfect. You're always just like uh, even sending a person to the moon, you have product failures. You have product failures on everything. So when they're life-saving medical devices, that burden of responsibility of having a product failure uh, that, um, that uh, st either stresses a patient or uh, can lead to the death of a patient is, uh, you know, is the, the other edge of that double-edged sword. But on the whole, uh, we were tremendously motivated with, uh, we would Every year we'd bring patients who had, whose lives had been saved by our devices to come speak at our employee meetings and share their stories and talk about what an impact we'd had on them. And uh, so all of that uh, helped, 
helped people stay focused. It helped people know they were doing something worthy. It uh, helped people be energized uh, rather than just punching a time clock at work. That tells me a lot about why you did the work that you did. Because the passion coming through your voice and, and your story, it says a lot about who you are and how much you care about others. Um, I, you know, Michael, you, 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 you're saying that really prompts a key thought in my mind, if you don't mind me sharing it. Uh, and, and that is, uh, as, as I know, um, the, the for orientation and kind of the purposes of your, of your series of podcasts, uh, one of the things that I learned early on that always made a difference to me right through to today is I never went after the money. I, I, I focused on what is it that I could get passionate about. And that's something that I've said to people when I'm talking to young, young people and uh, talking about what, what have I learned uh, during my journey here in the series of different things I've done. Uh, uh, the, the, boy, if, if a person is focused on something that energizes them, good things follow. And if someone is saying, well, that's not really what I like doing, but I think I can make more money doing that. I think that is the beginning of the road to perdition. That's not the same quality life doing something for the money as the quality of life doing something because you're passionate about it. And um, for, for me, I wasn't going for the money. I was following my passions at different points and the money followed because if a person is doing something they're passionate about, they're not only are they having better days day after day, but they're going to do a lot better at that endeavor. And if someone is really excelling at an endeavor, you catch people's attention, uh, people that you, you come across as a whole different quality of contributor, uh, opportunities open up for you. The whole world is looking for energetic, passionate people who can provide a high value of contribution, no matter what kind of contribution that is. Uh, so that opens doors. Uh, that, so, you know, everybody follow your passion. Uh, don't get misled thinking I need to go for a bigger paycheck. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm so happy you shared that. Thank you. When you were uh, growing up, um, were you always very passionate about um, the things that interested you? Like what was what were your passions in your youth? One of my passions was U.S. military history. Uh, what I recall is when I first uh, began to read, uh, and it's my earliest memories of going to the public library and finding books to read, what I remember going to read, I knew where the frontier section of the public library was with age-appropriate books for me, however old I was. I was just a little kid. I mean, I it was before I was eight years old. I don't know exactly how young I was, but I was reading about the French and Indian War. I'm reading about opening the U.S. frontier, uh, the um, the um, uh, Indian Wars. Um, I'm reading about the American Civil War, uh, and I I was just I was I was passionate about reading generally, but I was particularly passionate about reading about U.S. I didn't think of it in terms of this at the time my terminology was a little a little less developed you know but but today I recognize it as U.S. military history. Uh, they uh, my big claim to fame to kind of back that up and give you an example of of my passion in fifth grade we studied the American Civil War my fifth grade teacher had me teach the class because I knew a lot more about it than he did. Uh, and I remember, you know, it stuck in my mind. I remember after I'm given a, you know, a presentation to the class, it was a series of days where we're covering the uh, American Civil War. And 
and uh, I remember the teacher saying to the class, boy, isn't it something to have somebody like this in the class? Uh, and uh, so, you know, yeah, I was passionate right, right at the get-go. And, and then I, you know, as I found different things I was doing, I became passionate about them. There were times, when, uh, you know, when, when there were times when I lost my passion, and when I lost my passion, I made myself stop. I'll, I'll use as an example, I, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I, one of the little known facts about me is I never graduated from high school. I dropped out of high school after 10th grade. Uh, I, um, I, I was having trouble at home. Uh, I, I wasn't fitting in. I was having, uh, what, what I viewed as a series of traumatic experiences, uh, in my family and, uh, and, um, in the environment that I was in and I was headed down the wrong path. Uh, and, uh, what, what I did then was I was able to get myself out of that situation and put myself into a different situation where I had more personal freedom and I had a peer group that I could better relate to. I went to college. I early entered into college. I had to take the SATs after uh, 10th grade of high school. I scored high enough on the SATs that a particular liberal arts college let admitted me to uh, come into their freshman class without having 11th grade or 12th grade or a high school degree. Um, then, uh, the, and then I, I found plenty to be engaged in for an initial period of freedom and independence, living out of state, away from home, uh, being able to choose how I'm going to spend my time every day. But I found myself uh, there kind of uh, 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 abusing my independence. And I found myself partying too much. I found myself taking drugs. I found myself uh, really not applying um, myself to the academic opportunities. And instead, I was completely focused on the social opportunities. So I quit. I, uh, I, I, I left uh, college. I d said to myself, I'm wasting my time. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting stuck in a little bit of a trap here, and I'm going to take myself out of this situation. So I, I, I quit college. I, uh, I took a year off. Uh, I uh, just completely focused on my uh, independence and non-academic endeavors. Uh, uh, my brother and I uh, uh, drove a car uh, across the United States from New York to California. We hung out in hippie communities along the way. We ended up uh, um, uh, driving up to Alaska. Uh, and uh, by the time, we, this was before the Alaska Canadian Highway was improved. It was all gravel road serpentine uh, from uh, World War II. We uh, totally uh, ruined our car driving up to Anchorage. So we sold it in Anchorage, and then we hitchhiked back to New York. After that, I decided, you know, I think I'd like to go back to college. So I went back to the college I dropped out from, and thereafter, I excelled at college. I was there to focus on the academic opportunity, and I excelled. Um, and uh, so, you know, that this, and so th when, when I found my passion, again, I'm just kind of summarizing, when I found my passion lacking, I made a change in my life so that I wasn't wasting my time. And, and, then I, and then I would find my way back to something I could be passionate about. So for somebody who realizes that they're not living their passion, maybe they have a great job, they're making good money, but they're not feeling fulfilled and they're not feeling that they're living their, tr their purpose. Um, but they know there's other things inside of them that they want to express and explore and do with their life. Um, and they want to create abundance and they want to create wealth and success. Wh where's the first place that you would say that person would need to start? Envision a future state. You know, the, the, so uh, the, the thing, another 
lesson, hand in hand with exactly what you've asked me, is I've made so many changes in my life and I, uh, that I would never have imagined. At any point, I wouldn't have imagined. And the next thing you know, boy, I'm doing something completely different. And I've developed abilities that I never thought I would have. Uh, my takeaway from that is no one should underestimate their ability to change. The people have a, a, just a, a, a tremendous ability to change. It doesn't mean it's easy, but people have a tremendous ability to change. And so if a person is thinking, this is not really my best life, and then think about, so what is it that you might like to do? And you uh, imagine something and you say, but I don't have any capability of doing this. I don't have any skills to do this. I don't have any training. Uh, 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 and uh, boy, I, I mean, I'll use another example I'll use when I'm in law school. I was thinking, uh, first of all, I go to law school thinking I want to uh, do civil rights law. I had no interest in business, uh, and um, but I had to take business courses. Uh, you know, you can't go, you can't get a law degree without taking business courses. So I'm taking business courses, and then I have to take uh, litigation courses. Uh, and uh, among the things that I had to do at one point, I remember my first year of law school. It's called moot court, where you pretend you're in a courtroom and you have to make a public presentation to a panel of judges. First time. I had a moot court experience. I almost fainted. I literally almost fainted. I had never been a public speaker. I had no ability to be a public speaker. And as I, and this was my first time being a public speaker, and it was really low key. It's just a classroom of, uh, of fellow law students and uh, a professor and a senior law student. And I've got a, uh, an assignment on what I'm supposed to present. I present it. And I remember while I'm presenting it to him, I choked. I completely choked. And you hear sometimes with high stress, a person can get tunnel vision. That's the only time in my life where my peripheral vision disappeared and I was so stressed. I got tunnel vision and I couldn't talk and everybody felt bad for me. You know, I, and the reason I'm saying this is that's how unable I was to speak publicly. And today, I mean, now, now here, however many years later I, you've I've, been on television multiple times and <laughs> yeah i mean i've spoken to is this you know, your first podcast no i did oh, a okay. I, I i i claimed i did a podcast for the aarp they wanted to do a podcast uh, on the museum uh, so the, you're actually Amazing. my second podcast and now i did another <laughs> podcast too for some trucker uh, uh radio program but but it's almost like that experience of failure gave you the tools and the in the strength and the wisdom to keep moving forward to be in a public space and have confidence in yourself the way i would say it isn't that the experience of failure the way i would the the i would say that take my example where i was i you know i wasn't just at ground zero i was in a hole that i mean everybody was doing a better job of public speaking at that point in my uh, first year of law school than I was. I was one of the worst. The thing, but and but and and the the reason I kind of make that emphasis though is, I decided I wanted to learn how to do it. That's the point. It isn't that the failure taught me. It's that I failed and I was that bad. But I said, I got to get better at this. And that's my point of don't ever you know no one should underestimate their ability to change. If you want to change, and I wanted to change, 
I embarrassed myself, uh, you know, among other things, but also I take a pride in being able to do things. And here was something I absolutely could not do. I was one of the worst. So I start putting myself in a position. I've, I seek out, okay, where are these training programs? I, uh, uh, and I, and I, I seek out public speaking seminars. I, I make myself go into these situations where I'm awful and I hate it and I'm super stressed, but I practiced. Uh, and I got more comfortable with it. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and today I excel at it. And I, you know, and, and so that's an example to say, if you're in a situation that you don't like, or that you would like to change, and you imagine a future state you would like to be in, don't uh, trash talk yourself and say, well, I can't do that. Don't underestimate how much you can learn and how much you can change to make yourself able to excel at something that is important enough for you to learn how to do and practice. And, uh, and uh, every time you're afraid of doing it, um, make yourself uh, do it anyway. And that fear will dissipate and your skills will improve and your um, and uh, your your you know you 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 can turn yourself into someone who can do that if you work hard enough at it and if you are willing to overcome the fears not you know not not just be afraid and therefore don't do it but say okay I got to make myself do this and be willing to feel bad and be willing to uh, say that 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 really kind of sucked. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but then keep doing it. Don't give up on it. You, you can get a lot better at anything you set your mind to. 100%, 100%. Through my research in, uh, people who have achieved their dreams, who have achieved, um, uh, notable levels of success, they talk a lot about this visualization technique whether it's an MMA fighter, artist, uh, business person, um, somebody that's doing uh, something creative and entertainment. Um, and I've learned that to be true in my life, to really honor that and, and to take it very seriously. And one of the things I've learned, and I don't know whose research this is from, but I, I came across this fact, and I fully believe in this, is that human beings separate themselves from other creatures on this planet and that one dimension that separates us from others amongst many other things. But the one key dimension is that we have the ability to um, materialize from visualization. So once we have an, a thought or something that we can imagine that we can see, we can connect with it mentally, spiritually and emotionally. It will be a matter of time before it comes physically. Do you do you have some kind of like vision board or how do you kind of practice that visualization technique is it something that you just remind yourself every morning what does that look like for me it is uh you know i and i when i'm hemming and hawing just a little bit trying to find exactly the right words but uh, uh the um the way i think about it so i i don't disagree with anything that you just said at the same time i don't think about it exactly that way uh, and uh, the the way I think about it is I think about it in terms of setting a goal. And so when I set a goal, that's that's my future state. When I say envision a future state, it's not so much that I'm visualizing myself doing that. It's more for me personally. Uh, my own experience has been I set a goal and then I work back from there. And I think about now, what do I need to do? If that goal is important enough to me, and maybe my goal is public speaking, if that goal is important enough to me, now, 
how do I get started heading down a path that 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 I think you know with the little bit of information I've got right now I think these next steps are going to help me get closer to that goal I might be right I might be wrong uh, but but that's I think of it as goal setting and then working back I think of it as analysis or problem solving to get what information do I need to to, to learn uh, to have an idea of how to uh, act constructively to get me closer to that goal. You know, you start out saying, "I." If you start out saying, "I want to be whatever," you know, or, or "I want to," I want to climb Mount Everest, or "I want to swim the English Channel." You just say, "Well, that's a goal. I don't know anything about how to do that." All right, so you got to start getting information, and uh, then uh, uh, and and as you get information, you find out there's a lot of things involved with that goal you had no idea of um, I, I I was researching swimming the English Channel at, at an earlier point in my life I I was a distant swimmer I thought man that'd be something to swim the English Channel uh, and uh, one of the big challenges is tides another big challenge is how cold that water is uh, you know you and another big challenge is uh, all the debris in the English Channel people uh, get broken bones trying to swim the English Channel having debris hit them you know so you just but you start out saying well this is just a matter of swimming a distance no it's not there's a whole lot of other things involved uh, so you know I, and I think that's pretty typical anytime someone sets a goal uh, that uh, it starts out being very aspirational uh, it's v very often a person doesn't really know exactly what is involved and what's entailed what do you need to overcome to achieve that goal so you have to start finding out about it and meanwhile you're making best guesses on uh well here's a course i could take here's a job i could take here's an experience i could have um here, here's some um, uh, physical conditioning that i can address uh all of which i think will, will be just a little baby step to help me be closer to achieving that goal and then you keep getting better informed along the way Fantastic. Fantastic. What, what is, so you really broke that down very well in, in a way that I've actually never heard it before. So thank you for that. Um, in my experience, having goals prompts action. It prompts accountability. You have sometimes a date, sometimes you don't, but you have a, an end point that you're working towards. And the way you explained it is universal. Uh, it, you don't have to have any special skill or talent it's it's any human with with a with a healthy mindset and a healthy healthy uh, physical state can adopt those principles and work towards uh, swimming the channel, climbing Mount Everest. One of my good friends right now, she's on Everest as I speak, climbing it right now. Um, and uh, people doing these amazing things with their life, and they're not professionals at it, but they find a way. They they create the path. So thank you so much for sharing that. Who 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 would you say has been a big influence on your life overall? I'm 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 quiet only because that's a lot of years to think about. I'm 67 years old, so I'm thinking I'm just thinking okay, long life and uh lots of different people at different times. You know there there hasn't been a single person that's uh, been more like little uh, uh, tributaries coming into the Mississippi River, where a uh, little bit here, little bit, you know, a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person. I remember a big influence on me was a tutor I had in college, and uh, the the backdrop was that 
I, I was just coming back. I was in my first semester coming back to college after dropping out of college. And I, I, I dropped out because I wasn't serious enough in my mind. And so now I came back thinking I need to step it up and I'm ready to step it up and I want to take advantage of this learning experience. And uh, that, that first uh, two semesters I was back, I went to school in, in Oxford, England, uh, and not as part of Oxford University, but I was taking tutorials from Oxford graduate students. And I had a particular uh, Oxford PhD uh, candidate who was my tutor for a classical literature tutorial. And uh, his standards for himself were so much higher than my standards for myself. I learned a lot, first of all, I, I felt embarrassed thinking I, I like to think of myself as having something on the ball and compared to this guy, I'm not even in the same uh, zip code. Uh, and uh, I mean, this guy is performing at a high level and his expectations of what is good enough are a lot higher than mine. I'd had no experience with those kinds of standards, uh, those kinds of expectations. And so him having those expectations of me and me being honest to say I'm falling short of those expectations really motivated me to up my game, and I did. So he had a tremendous influence on me. I had another, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you know, different people, different uh, uh, professors uh, along the way uh, had uh, big influences on me. Um, uh, there, then you know, a lot of people that having somebody, even having somebody treat me poorly would have a big influence on me, uh, both to help me understand how abusive and detrimental it is to treat somebody poorly, and also then to have me uh, know that I'm not gonna act like that. I'm gonna behave better to other people. And uh, you know, so th there's, there's no, no one person that is like a, a kind of a guru uh, to me, but uh, I certainly have learned a lot of things from so many people either from their bad example or from their good example or from their positive encouragement. Absolutely. Well said. And thank you for uh, just being vulnerable and, and just opening up and, and being honest about that. I appreciate it. Um, so if I were to ask you, what does the word leadership really mean to you? How would you answer that question? Well, it means set an example. That's the first thing it means. Uh, the, and that, that, uh, I'm absolutely committed to leadership by example, uh, and throughout my career, my my view of my obligations as a leader have been: I'd better be performing better than anyone else uh, now, as 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 a mindset, not as a reality. Uh, but um, I, I when when I'm when I was a lawyer, I'm the first person in the office. I'm turning on the lights every day. I was the last person out of the office almost all the time. Uh, when I'm a, a CEO of St. Jude Medical, I'm the first person in the office every day, almost every day. I'm uh, often the last person, at least one of the last people out of the office. Um, I would, um, on, on travel, let's use the example of travel. A lot of CEOs in public companies have private airplanes, for example. Uh, the, the company pays for them. They're tremendously expensive. Uh, but these CEOs and these senior executives in these large firms will decide to use company money to, it's partly ego and it's partly convenience uh, to fund a, uh, an, an airplane department in their public company. That's typical. That's the norm. I never did that. And I always refused. And my, uh, my rationale was two things. One was, 
we're, we never have enough money for product development. Now, let's say a, um, a private aircraft, uh, private aviation department, uh, I don't, you know, the, they, they can cost any number of things, but they're all going to be seven-figure numbers and multiple seven-figure numbers. It's going to be some millions of dollars you're spending on pilots and uh, aircraft and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, so how could a leader justify saying, we don't have enough money for product development. Product development is where we save lives. Product development is where we fuel sales growth, is where we fuel the ability to compensate everybody appropriately, as well as to reinvest and continue and expand to the business, uh, as well as uh, create the money to give back to shareholders who are the people who own that money. And instead, you get these senior executives saying, well, I'm going to uh, skive off some millions of dollars so that I can fly privately. And why? You know, and uh, it, it's, to me, it's an abuse. And uh, the next thing about it is uh, nobody likes, I mean, I was flying uh, 200,000 miles a year, all commercial, um, uh, you know, and it's like, that's a pain in the ass. And there was nothing fun about the travel. I mean, it's just grueling. And uh, uh, and uh, I, I suppose uh, commercial travel's gotten worse here uh, uh, in these last few years. But it's never been pleasant. And so nobody likes doing that. Nobody likes, uh, you know, this road warrior thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough lifestyle. It's bad on your health. It's bad on the stress. Uh, it's really wearing. Uh, and, uh, and so why would I say to other people in the company, you need to do this and meanwhile have me be nice and cushy on private flights you know it's like a leadership by example if i'm expecting people to do it i need to show them i'm doing it too this is what we do and then i, I it's i'm setting a standard and i'm uh, i'm i'm showing the authenticity uh and i'm showing i'm in this with everybody else and that was always my goal my, my goal wasn't to be as a leader i've seen leadership styles uh where um the um the the leader wants to set her or him apart i never wanted to do that i wanted to be a teammate setting examples working with everybody with the idea that we're all in this together we're either all going to fail together or we're all going to win together and if we all win together we're all going to benefit from it and if people see that and they believe it and it's authentic you get a heck of a lot of energy and uh, so again, that, and so that's, you know, part of the, when I think of leadership, I, I start out saying leadership by example, but the goal of leadership is to create a high performing, sustainable team. And you can't, in my mind, you can't sustain, you, you are, no matter what else you count as a check box, uh, uh, box you're checking and saying, well, I did that. Okay. You're not doing the best you could be doing unless you create a team with a lot of talent where everybody's being treated well and where everybody's saying, I am lucky to be here. You know, that the, if, if you're creating an environment where, uh, where the very best people say, I can find better, they leave and they find better. They find a leadership environment uh, that is like what I'm describing. And then you end up losing your best people. The people you keep are the people that are uh, lo lower contributors. And that then over time creates a, a culture. You ever have a high performing culture where people are thrilled they're there and they're telling other people, man, if you can get on board here, it's a good thing, uh, you know, uh, uh, on all levels or, and now you're, now you're a winning company. 
and uh, your your customers are happy, your you know your patients are happy. If it's a uh, as uh, our customers would often be the healthcare providers, not the patients. Uh, your employees are happy, uh, and uh, everybody's working really hard. And when uh, when uh, hard times come, everybody's got a skin in the game, and they all want to overcome whatever this challenge is that's created the hard times. Versus uh, other companies, some of our competitors, the the competitors I liked the most were the ones where the leaders. Uh, uh, were on an ego trip. They set themselves apart. They they didn't understand the business. They didn't dig in. They flew on private airplanes. They uh, um, and um, um, they uh, they had a political environment, not a not a performance uh, environment. Uh, it was a matter of uh, kind of sucking up to the leadership team, and that's how you get ahead. Versus uh, hard work gets you ahead. You know. So leadership is uh, you know it's it's setting the culture. It's creating the team. It's uh, setting examples. Uh, all of those things are part of leadership. Another part of leadership is to be able to communicate uh, uh, to uh, it's uh, so you're not a uh, kind of a diamond in the rough. You want that diamond to be known uh, by everybody in the company, uh, even if it's 28,000 people and they're scattered all around the world and they have all kinds of different cultural orientations and stuff. You've got to be able to communicate to have everybody feel like they're part of a worthy organization doing worthy things together and succeeding together. And then they police themselves too. Then if you've got uh, a high performing environment, when you know, the, you, the, the leadership is never going to know how everybody in the company's doing. The leadership often struggles to get much information very deep into the company. You've got to have the people that are already daily basis deep in the company that are helping to maintain the standards you want, that are calling out people that are uh, dead weight, that are sloughing off, that are playing pretend, and uh, they're really uh, sucking resources. You're, you're wasting resources on these people, and they're not really helping. And so then the th- the, the, the all of the value that... Uh, uh, performing contributors are creating some of it gets dissipated uh, f- uh, off to these uh, people that are just uh, hanging on rather than actually helping to uh, carry their own weight so you know all these things to me come to mind when you ask me about leadership excellent excellent the w- thing that was going through my mind as you were talking was the ripple effect from the top and how that kind of shapes the culture of the company, the mindset of the company, in the direction of the company, both from a, a cultural and a financial standpoint. Um, beautiful answer. Thank you for that, Dan. You're welcome. When being in a leadership position, um, how do you approach problem solving? Um, what, what's kind of like the first thing that comes to mind if I were to ask you, like, what are the three things an executive leader needs to understand when trying to solve a problem in any capacity you have to have accurate information that's the first thing uh the the uh, a lot of times leaders don't get accurate information and they're not close enough to the business to recognize that the information being presented to them is wrong and if you're making a decision based on wrong information uh, you're going to make a bad decision. So having accurate information is the first thing. Uh, and, and in order to have accurate information, uh, the leaders need to really dig into the business personally. They can't rely on information that is fed to them. Throughout my career, I was fed information, usually in good faith. Very rarely was I being maliciously fed uh, false information. Uh, but uh, but I, one of the things that helped me solve problems 
better than a lot of my competitors is I could recognize when something just didn't seem right and I'd dig into it more. And the reason I could recognize it is because I was close enough to the business and I, I wasn't, you know, a lot of times in a public company, the, the CEO kind of is an administrator. Uh, the CEO is somebody who deals with stock market, deals with, uh, you know, kind of uh, not customers, uh, you know, deals with politics and stuff like that. What I focused on was I focused on products. I focused on, focused on the clinical procedures our products were used in. I made sure I was out in the field uh, spending a lot of time with the people who were using our products, with the cardiologists, with the other medical specialists that were using our products. And I knew enough about it that when people would uh, uh, present information to me where I needed to make a decision, I, I, I'm sure I missed plenty of things, but I got a lot more right where I said that this doesn't smell right. I don't believe this information. And people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know we checked it out. I say, no, it's, it's not right. I, I know enough about this business to say that's not right. And when I and, and there's and that's a good process. I was I was usually correct when I said I know enough about this business and what you're telling me just isn't right. I was usually correct. But if I was wrong, that's OK, because all I'm doing is having a discussion. I'm not beating up on anybody. I'm just saying, hey, prove it tell me more. And if they have, if they are right, then they can tell me more. And then I'll say, Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. Now I'm smarter. Uh, and so, so that, that comes to mind first is you got to have accurate information and that's no simple thing to have accurate information. That's a whole working style and leadership style where you have to dig into the details of the business enough that you have a, a, a nose that can smell when you're when there's something more you need or something wrong with the the information you're being presented a lot of this uh and then another part of problem solving is you never have all the information you want uh, a good way to fail in problem solving is to be frozen and be indecisive because you need more information and you'll never get all the information you're and so uh, there's a judgment involved in problem solving to say okay i wish i knew more i don't know more i will never know everything i need to know and i'm gonna have to decide anyway so uh, that that judgment of when do you make your decision even though you don't know everything you'd like to know and then um that judgment of okay what decision are you going to make it's like there's an instinct that um, that you you have or don't or you you know you have in varying degrees, you shape that instinct by knowing a lot about your business, uh, and and so again if you're in a leadership position where you stay in the corporate offices, you are not going to have the instinct of someone who is in uh, 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 surgeries in China and is uh, in the uh, company offices in China and is talking firsthand with people in China and people in Germany and people in uh, every other uh, of the 130 countries that we did business in. Uh, you, you have to just have a lot of experience. And, and then that, that experience, if, if, you, if you have a narrow base of experience, when you have to make a judgment without all the information you like, you are less likely to make the best uh, judgment.
So that that comes to mind too in problem solving is you've got to accept you you you've, you you got to push for information to be accurate. You got to accept you're never going to have all the information you want, and you have to develop the judgment, which comes from how broad is your experience and how deep is your experience in your business and industry about your competitors to to know when is it time to make a judgment and then to make the best possible judgment, even though you don't have all the information you wish you had. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, if there's a, uh, a, a, a new CEO who's taken that type of responsibility in any given company and they're looking to expand, they're looking to grow, uh, do the acquisition track. I think a lot of what you said kind of plays into that arena. Would you say that? in terms of getting yeah, the right information yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I would i you know when, when i think of a new ceo the because uh, i i was a new ceo right so uh uh and and i was a new ceo in a couple of different environments uh and uh um and what and i i saw what new ceos did that set them up for failure and i know what i did as a new ceo that uh w that were uh, key ingredients of my success. The first thing I would say to a new CEO is ask a lot of questions. Because, uh, you know, no matter, even if you came up in the business uh, and you say, well, I already know the business, uh, you know, still um, uh, being the CEO has new dynamics that you haven't had previously in your career. And you'd never really appreciate that until you're the CEO. And then no matter how well prepared you thought you were, there's something different about being a CEO than being the person right next to a CEO. So, uh, so, uh, but, but if you're particularly, if you're new to the business, if you've come into the business in a CEO role, the very first thing I'd say is ask a lot of questions. Don't pretend, you know, stuff don't get sucked into thinking, well, I'm the leader. So I can't ask questions that'll show that there's things I don't know. No, you go grill everybody. You grill them and uh, find out how good they are. Find out what they know. Uh, if they're excellent, you're going to learn a lot from them. If, uh, and then you connect the dots. You, so one person answers your questions. The next person answers your questions. They're answering questions about the same business. Is what they're saying holding together or is what they're saying disparate? And you kind of say, are, are you all working for the same company? So you, you got to ask a lot of questions to assess your talent. You got to ask a lot of questions to start developing the ability to make good judgments. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and then you, you form a bond with people. If you're talking to somebody who is spot on and is telling you all about it and has her or his his act together and they're just shining well you compliment them and you thank them and you let them know man i'm uh, you know i respect you and that's how you're going to build a relationship is by respecting their capability and their expertise and their leadership and their ability to continue to contribute more in the business and you're not ever going to know that unless you're talking with them and asking them a lot of questions getting into a discussion and then you let them see how you think too as you respond to information you're giving you and that gives you a chance to build your credibility your respect as your uh investigating you know kind of doing due diligence on okay so what do we have here what's working what isn't working uh and you know just all kinds of questions um um the um uh, a second thing here i i had a thought in mind and i've kind of blanked on it a little bit uh, uh after questions yeah the the second thing is i've seen ceos who new ceos who think that they're supposed to be uh have the answer to everything and and of course they don't so they play pretend. They try to bluff through it. 
and they 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 consider it to be a sign of weakness to need other people around them, kind of thinking, well, I'm supposed to be um, uh, Zeus, you know, I'm I'm supposed to be the Almighty, uh, know everything, omniscient, uh, and um, and I and I, I replaced uh, a CEO who is just like that and failed horribly because of it, thinking. Uh, he needed to keep his own counsel. He needed to be above it all. He needed to just be this kind of mysterious, omniscient leader. And, and, and as a result, he's a fish out of water and failed horribly in a very short period of time. My approach was completely different. What I said to everybody is, I need everybody to know what I know. If I'm the only one who understands what the issues are and understands what we have to work with, uh, everybody's going to, we're, we're never going to be on the same page. I want everybody on the same page. I want everybody to have the same problem I have. I want everybody to know the same strengths and the same weaknesses that I have. I want everybody to know the same competitive concerns, the same own company capabilities that I know so that we can all solve this problem together. Now you've got a different background. You're going to bring a different perspective to it than I am. All of us are, but we put it, and this is that thing of multiple heads together being better than one, no matter how talented any one person is, you still have your background. You don't have uh, different backgrounds, get other talented people with different backgrounds, all with the same information. And now talk about what's the best course forward. You'll come up with a better uh, solution to the problem uh, with that kind of teamwork and that kind of diverse input. And you can't have that teamwork and diverse input unless you have a transparent operating environment. When you have a company where people say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to control my information. I don't want people to know what's going on in my area because, um, you know, because of different, they're all bad reasons, uh, you know, but uh, plenty of people operate that way where they, they say, and I don't tell anybody this, you know, and my thing was everybody needs to know everything within reason. There'd be some personnel matters that would be confidential. There would sometimes be legal confidentiality that would limit the transparency. But to me, that was a critical thing as uh, to have uh, transparency and share as much information as, uh, as possible so that everybody can have the most meaningful contributions to help them solve those problems. Love it. If you were to categorize three principles that help you make decisions in life or business. Um, what, where do you lean in terms of that? A, a first principle in my mind is to be aware of your own baggage and your own vulnerabilities. And uh, so this would be something that again is uh, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. You know, a lot of people don't want to talk about their own baggage and their own vulnerabilities, but uh, um you know, the, 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 so I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm only answering your question indirectly here because I want to get into this background about baggage and vulnerabilities. In my experience, I, I, I'm sure my experience is incomplete and there are plenty of exceptions to what I'm going to say. But in my experience, everybody comes through childhood with scars. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are uh, pathologies in families. There are pathologies in working relationships. There are pathologies in peer relationships. There are pathologies in community dynamics and stuff. I mean, I came through my childhood with a lot of scars. Uh, and that, that was part of what motivated me to leave home at 16 and leave home after uh, 10th grade of high school. And a person then can do one of two things 
with and I call those scars and those you know the 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 pathologies that influence you as a kid all the bad experiences you have all of the unfairness you know all of the uh, things people say that are mean it might be a parent it might be a sibling it might be somebody else important to you they say mean things that affect your self-confidence uh, uh, that um, you know that make you uh, you know that just I, I say create a scar without getting into just kind of all the details of what that scar might be but my 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 view is that we all come into adulthood with scars some more than others it's pretty important to be honest and self-aware about what are your own scars you know if you're hiding from your scars and if you're uh, kind of stuffing it things are going to come up uh uh that uh, where 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 you're you're trying to push away the reality uh because it's scary and it's or it's hurtful you know and uh, uh and and to me the first thing is you know be aware of your own scars and and then what i would add to it this wasn't your question but what i would add to it is boy is there ever a lot of value in facing these traumas from growing up directly and figuring out how to reduce the negative impact of these traumas that you suffered before you became self-aware enough to have an adult perspective uh and uh, so for me i had a lot of therapy uh several different times in my life and i am so happy i did uh and uh and and uh, and this then affects you know and 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 it's not like you know i mean multiple years i've had multiple years of therapy multiple times in my life all to try to gain an adult perspective on hurts that i suffered when i uh had a child's perspective and that created all kinds of negative subliminal uh um you know attitudes and emotions and uh, uh thoughts in my mind and all that kind of thing and boy if you can if you can work through those you never really completely eliminate them you know it's just but you can reduce them you can reduce the impact of them and uh so that that's that's like a first principle is deal with your demons everybody's got demons and they have a the only way they have a lot of force and uh can trip you up is if you keep trying to run from them and you keep trying to hide them and you keep trying to pretend they're not there you try to stuff them that that but and it's so scary to take them on and face them uh, but if you can make yourself again this is that same thing uh it, it, you know the, this thing about uh, make yourself do things you're afraid of uh and as you make yourself do things you're afraid of you'll find well actually that didn't kill me number one and then number two the next time you do it it's not quite as scary and then you really develop after a while boy it's like i remember when this terrified me and not doesn't anymore you know and now what i'll say now at age 67 i'll say well i still have hurts from when i was a child that impact me but boy they impact me a lot less and now i can recognize them and i can say oh yeah that's that old negative message and that's that old vulner <clears throat> that old vulnerability i had and it um it doesn't uh control me anymore um i i actually in 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 kind of going down this uh, path here i forgot what your question was on three somethings if you ask me again i'll tie this back to that and go on to the next two what you just said is more than enough but thank you thank you so much uh, the question was just what are like three guiding principles that you use to make decisions in life or, or business? Yeah, the first guiding principle, deal with your own personal baggage, right, right. Uh, work to uh, mitigate it. 
another guiding principle is, uh, and, and related to that, a guiding principle would be be honest with yourself. You know, you just have to, I mean, if you're not honest with yourself, uh, uh, again, so many bad things follow from that. And, and, and you know when you're not being honest with yourself at, a, at, at some level, and it wears at you, it eats at you if you're not being honest with yourself. No matter what it is that you don't want to be honest about, make yourself be honest with yourself. Um, and that usually ties to childhood baggage. Uh, um, you know, uh, another guiding principle is, uh, um, is, uh, would be, I'd say is, um, uh, don't be, a you know, uh, you know, I, I would think of multiple guiding principles. W w one of the guiding principles is, um, is not to run from what you're afraid of, you know, and, and, and make yourself deal with face what you're afraid of. You can overcome it. Uh, whether it's claustrophobia, whether it's fear of heights, whether it's uh, am I a good enough person, you can overcome it, make yourself face it, uh, and, um, and reduce that fear. That, that fear is going to stay powerful if you run from it. If you face it and take it on and go through it, even though it's unpleasant, you reduce the impact of that fear. Yeah, another thing would be uh, don't try to do everything yourself. Don't be afraid to ask for help. That'd be another guiding principle. Nobody it's going to do everything uh, his or herself. Uh, and uh, it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help. It's a sign of strength and confidence that you are asking for help. Uh, and you'll do a lot better uh, uh, when you ask for help and are willing to receive help. Um, th you know, those are a couple things. You know, another thing would be another uh, guiding principle would be to um, uh, reward people around you. You know, if you're, if you're somebody, if you're a taker, you know, and that's like, you know, I ask, you know, hell, I ask for help. I take all the help I can get, but I'm not giving anything back. That's a lot more limited uh, path forward than if you're someone who uh, you're working to make things good for the people around you, including just little things like complimenting someone who helps you. You know, or you see somebody doing something good and you say, boy, that's really good. You know, having that self-confidence that, uh, that that doesn't mean you're worse because they're good. Uh, give them credit and uh, give them accolades and uh, surround yourself with talented people who can do things that you can't. All of those would be what come to mind when you ask for guiding principles. Thank you for that powerful message. Amazing, amazing. Uh, you know, I had a guest on here a couple episodes ago and he talked about the art of giving in order to receive and uh, must be, you must be looking for opportunities to give. And uh, that kind of prompts the opportunity to receive as well. Um, so beautiful answer, Dan. Thank you for that. Uh, so here in Wyoming, you have built a new life during your retirement and have done some truly amazing things for the community, um, for the country, and just for uh, our veterans as well. Um, because you were a true admirer and student of military history, you've become a collector of military vehicles. You've made history by building the National Museum of Military Vehicles in Du Bois, Wyoming, for all of America and all of the world to learn about the unknown history of our soldiers. You have made this a tier one world-class museum. I have witnessed you giving the tours of this museum myself, and you do a phenomenal job, and you love your love and your passion for military history comes through. I highly recommend everyone to visit the National Museum of Military Vehicles because it's interactive, it's cutting edge, it's immersive, educational, authentic, and just absolutely beautiful. So I love to learn a little bit about where did you get the idea of building the National Museum of Military Vehicles? I stumbled into it. 
I started with no plan to do a museum. I, uh, I, I started with a single acquiring a single uh, uh, thirty-ton paperweight, and when I say thirty-ton paperweight, my point is, I, I bought a World War II Sherman tank that was all rusted out, and I, I tongue-in-cheek called it a thirty-ton paperweight. It didn't have tracks. It, uh, it had holes. The rusted uh, rust all the way through the walls of the hall. Um, didn't have a gun on it. It had a tree growing out of it. So I bought that. Uh, I, I, I became aware of the opportunity to buy that for $50,000 uh, with a fantasy that I was going to find somebody who could restore it. And I wanted to, and all I ever wanted to do, I wanted this one tank. I had no plans on buying anything else, but I wanted this one tank. I wanted to get it restored. And I wanted to celebrate the independence of the United States, help celebrate the independence of the United States by driving it in the local 4th of July parade. So I wanted to get it uh, completely restored in driving, fully operating uh, uh, condition except for the gun and uh, and then drive it in the parade. And, and that was it. Uh, the uh, What happened after that is uh, I bought that in 2010. In, uh, but in 2014, I'd made no progress on restoring this 30-ton paperweight. And I was impatient. Uh, four years later, I still hadn't gotten to drive in the parade. So I bought a second tank that was already restored. Uh, and um, um, the second tank was a $500,000. That was the price of a restored tank, 500000 versus an unrestored tank at 50000 And I drove this tank in the Dubois 4th of July parade. Uh, uh, I, I acquired a small amount of additional vehicles. I probably had about a total of uh, 15 vehicles or so. Uh, and... Um, People started uh, finding out through word of mouth that I had this small collection of military vehicles. This was just for my own enjoyment. Uh, every time I bought one of these small number of military vehicles, I would find out more about it. I'd find out more about so exactly how was this used. I would read the, and I wouldn't read uh, kind of uh, reference books. I'd read the human interest stories. I'd read, uh, let me, let, so let me read about Sherman tanks. Let me read about uh, Sherman tank crews uh, and, uh, and, and then uh, read about their conditions of combat and all of that. And then when people would come to look at, say, hey, can I, I hear you got some military vehicles. I hear you got a tank. Do you really have a tank? Can I come look at it? And I would always say yes. Uh, and, uh, but then when they came to look at it, then I would start talking about, imagine, serving in this. Uh, and I'll use the example of a Sherman tank. So when you see it, you've seen it. It's not that big. The tank itself is a lot larger than the fighting chamber inside where the crew goes. Five people go inside that fighting chamber. When you put five people inside this cramped fighting chamber, people can't even turn around. It's extremely claustrophobic. Uh, and imagine, and I, first time I climbed into this uh, Sherman tank by myself, and I'm a smaller guy, I climb into it, I've got the hatches open, I got an anxiety attack from claustrophobia. And then I'm thinking, man, imagine four other guys being in here, and imagine closing the hatches. And then if you close the hatches, all you can use to look out is you look through, it's called a periscope, but it's just a little narrow rectangular slit. Now, close the hatch, imagine that claustrophobia. Now, imagine the lack of visibility looking through a little narrow rectangular slit, no peripheral vision. Now, imagine uh, the combat environment. The Germans had tanks that could destroy our tanks with armor-piercing rounds, our tanks could not destroy German tanks with armor-piercing rounds. I'm referring to direct frontal shots. Their 
armor was thicker on the front than ours. Their guns were more powerful than ours as a result of that. If we're faced off a thousand yards apart, we fire an armor-piercing round at them. They do the same to us. Our armor-piercing round is going to bounce off their front armor. Theirs is going to take out our tank and kill the crew inside. So here you are knowing that that's the reality, uh, and you can't see much. And you have to be able to see to, uh, to maneuver away from that tank, uh, German tank giving you a kill shot, you've got to be able to see, you want to see them first so you can maneuver around to the side. The armor is thinner on the side of their tanks. You can penetrate the armor on the side, but that depends on visibility and superior mobility. You're trapped, you can't see. Now, now fire your main gun. Uh, we've, uh, we've, we've fired our main gun with uh, uh, gas. Uh, propulsion, uh, not firing live rounds, but firing frozen water bottles. Uh, that's not as loud as a real uh, firing a, a real round uh, with all of the powder and everything. But when you fire the main gun, it deafens everybody. It, yeah, everybody outside need you got to tell them going to fire it. Everybody cover your ears. Anybody in the tank needs to cover your ears. Imagine. And it's, my point is just it's a lot louder than anybody would guess. Now. Think about how loud it is if you're inside and the hatch is down containing that noise and the gun is literally four inches away from your head and it fires. Think about how loud that is. Everybody's deaf. So you're claustrophobic. You can't see. You can't hear. And when you fire that main gun, smoke fills the fighting chamber. You can't breathe. And you, you are vulnerable to the enemy has a better tank. And so you can't see, you can't hear, you can't breathe, uh, you, uh, you're uh, claustrophobic, you have an inferior gun, you have inferior armor, and, um, and a lot of Sherman tanks were killed along with their crews. We lost something like five Sherman tanks for every German tank we took out. Uh, and, and yet these Americans got back into those tanks Four, four companion tanks in their platoon got, uh, got destroyed yesterday. And you know you're you know exactly why they got destroyed. It's all these things I'm talking about. And you get back into your tank and go out into harm's way the next day again anyway. And you do that day after day after day. Now, that's a different experience than just saying a Sherman tank weighs 30 tons. It has a 75 millimeter gun. Here's how thick. You know, it's not about the tank. It's about that human experience. We're not. So the National Museum of Military Vehicle is a bait and switch. We bait people in who want to look at things like, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, something they don't get to see very often like a tank, but we're not about the tank at all. What we're about is the stories of uh, service and sacrifice. We want everybody, we want to put people as much as we can in the shoes of the Americans who served with these vehicles. If we're talking about a Higgins boat, which was an amphibious combat uh, boat in, uh, invented uh, to, uh, in the early uh, uh, phase of World War II to help us go from ocean-going uh, uh, deep-water vessels anchored miles offshore right up to an enemy beach under machine gun fire, we're not talking about the boat itself. Yeah, we'll say it can uh, motor in less than three feet of water. There's things we could say about the boat, but we want to talk about imagine being in that boat and imagine, and now there's a lot of different realities that we can convey while everybody's looking at this Higgins boat uh, about Americans who actually lived or died 
coming in on this boat in these tremendously challenging circumstances. And that's what the museum is about. It's about um, if we say uh, I've never served in a military capacity, uh, uh, which was one of my motivations to do this museum is to give back. I went into private business. I became uh, independently wealthy. Other people went into military service. They, they uh, made no money to speak of. Even four-star generals made no money to speak of. Well, I can give back. I can, uh, I can honor them. I can, I, I, can, I, can re- I can make their stories live. I can pass their stories along. And, I can, uh, uh, when, and I, the, the, the point I make to everybody who comes to the museum for one of my tours is I say it's one thing to tell a veteran, thank you for your service. Uh, and, and, and you can mean it, but you don't know what they did. It's another thing. If you know, what was it like to actually be a crew member of a Sherman tank? And then, and then, you know, just, and, and then the next example and the next example and the next example, that's what we want to do. We want to tell as many non-military people as we can. Do you realize what Americans actually do when they serve in a military capacity. And if you know the stories of what they actually do and, uh, and how they died and how many ways there were for them to die and those who survived who came home, often with survivor's guilt, often with terrible traumas that they carry with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, if you know what they actually did and you say, thank you for your service, it means a lot more. And they're gonna be able to tell that you know something when you thank them for their service they're going to be able to tell the difference between kind of perfunctory automatic like hi how do you do shaking hands with somebody versus i'm really glad to see you uh, when you see somebody that means a lot to you and you're shaking their hand that's what we want to create as much as we can here uh, for non non veterans uh, at, to to help them really appreciate and really thank and really in a meaningful way honor Americans who have served in a military capacity. The other thing that we're doing is uh, we we have an agenda here where uh, we we're aware of how little so many young Americans are learning about American military history and about the many things that that we have done as a country that are really uh, things we that are very unique in a positive way. There, we have points of our history that are negative and black eyes and embarrassments. Uh, those things all need to be, we need to be honest about all those kinds of things. But we don't have a terrible history. We have an extraordinary, wonderful history with a lot to be proud of. Let's learn about those things too. Let's be honest about the things that are black eyes, but let's also learn about the things we uh, parts of our history that are exceptional and that we have to be proud of. One of those things, who knows? Who, who learns in school that the United States has liberated more foreign countries from, uh, from foreign occupation or uh, domination by armed minorities than any other country in the history of the world? Who learns that in school? I don't know anybody who's learned that in school. That is black and white factual. Uh, 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 there's, uh, the, we liberated, uh, so many countries during World War II. Uh, we, uh, uh, liberated, uh, 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 South Korea. Uh, we liberated Kuwait. We have liberated hundreds of millions of people, not Americans. We've liberated hundreds of millions of foreign, of, of, uh, uh, civilians living in foreign countries from oppression, uh, and help them become independent 
and determine their own form of government. Now, I'm not saying we've done that everywhere. We haven't. We've made, we, we, have, we have been oppressors at times. We've uh, followed our own self-interest at times. But that doesn't change that at the same time, you got to balance everything. Or, you know, you got to look at the whole picture. Don't just look at the bad things. Look at the good things. And then see how many good things versus how many bad things. And then compare. What's the standard? Compare the experience of every other country. And then say, uh, so now here's here's the whole picture. We've all got the same information. And now how does the United States measure up? Uh, and there's a lot where we measure up better than any other people in the history of the world. I want to pass those things along. Brilliant. Brilliant. I um, just want to say thank you for what you've done for our veterans. And I know they all feel appreciative of the project that you put together to honor our military history. I walked out of that museum with a greater breadth, appreciation and respect for our veterans and for our country. Um, and it was an experience, not just going into a museum and looking at objects, but you put people into that point in time of those different wars. Um, and it was an absolutely beautiful and transformative experience. Thank you. Absolutely. We will be right back with 20 Degrees Deeper into the Labyrinth with our leader, Dan Starks, after a word from our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, One Education, One World, a Section 501c3 certified nonprofit on a mission to bring quality education to children in the rural parts of the world that do not have access to schools. OEOW gives these children quality education by providing them with an educational space, curriculum, supplies, qualified teachers and leadership in underserved communities. The focus is to inspire hearts and minds of all children while fostering their social, psychological, and spiritual well-being. If you'd like to learn more on how to support OEOW and bring quality education to underprivileged children, please visit www.oneeducationoneworld.org forward slash donations. Help us make a positive change in our world and our children's lives. Education is the right of every child, even a child far away, living in dire conditions in far-to-reach places. We would like to thank our sponsor, Imagine Collective, your premier experience agency, leading California's central and southern regions in event planning and management, digital and experiential marketing, brand partnerships, and more serving all coastal and inland communities from Monterey County down to San Diego County in the great Golden State. One of my favorite things about Imagine Collective is they donate a portion of their proceeds to a trusted charity of your choosing for each service they provide. Contact them today at 323-207-9572 and visit their website for more information at the Imagine Collective Dot com. Mention Leaders Labyrinth and enjoy 20% off your first service. Imagine Collective. Let's collectively imagine how to make our world a better place through the everyday work we do together. We would like to thank our sponsor, 
Malibu Audubon, a car collective known for its unique events in Southern California. Hosting epic and beautiful scenic group drives in Malibu and producing concerts in LA. But there's a lot more to it than just these events. Beyond its popular line of apparel, Malibu Audubon is well known as a curator for some of today's biggest music videos, TV shows, and other productions, sourcing and handling rare special vehicles for all types of projects. You can learn more and join Malibu Audubon at MalibuAudubon.com or simply visit at Malibu Audubon on Instagram. All right, this is the part of the show called 20 Degrees Deeper Into the Labyrinth. We're here with Dan Starks, where I ask our guest, our leader, 20 design questions to get to know them better on a mental and spiritual level. First question, Dan, how do you start your day? Do you have any morning routines or non-negotiables? I start my day with coffee and taking the dogs out, I'll tell you that. So it's pretty mundane. Uh, I, I wish I had something uh, more uh, uh, motivating to, to say to people. But, uh, you know, my, my key in starting the day is my goal is to wake up full of energy. That's what I want to do. And that's not so much how do I start my day as it is uh, how did I end my day the night before. Mm. Uh, if, I, if I didn't take care of myself uh, ending the day the night before, then I'm less likely to, you know, if I stayed up too late, if I uh, had too much wine, uh, then when I w start my day, I'm going to start my day dragging. I'm not going to be my best self. I'm not going to have the best day. So, so that's really the key, I think, is ending the prior day well, uh, and then I'm going to have a wonderful start to my day and a good rest of my day, too. What is your favorite quality about yourself? It's tough to pick a single quality. Uh, it's always a combination. Uh, but, um, uh, uh, you know, honesty and determination would be two qualities that come to mind. And, uh, you know, to me, it's, you know, I, I'm not always honest, uh, you know, again, to be honest, I'm not always honest, but it means a lot to me to be, to be honest. And so that's a, and, and I, and I usually am able to be honest with myself and usually able to be honest with others. And that means a lot to me to have, uh, me hold myself in, uh, in high regard, uh, to, to respect my own integrity and to have other people uh, respect my integrity. The, the, I'd also like to add, though, the point about determination, because we haven't touched on that yet in this discussion. And that's been a, maybe it's a guiding principle, uh, but uh, 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 a key difference between people who end up where they want to be and people who don't is who keeps going and who quits. And that comes under the category. That's what I'm talking about when I say determination. There's lots of things I got wrong, but as long as I didn't quit and I kept at it, and when I got knocked down, I was willing to get back up and try it again. Uh, that, that's something that I like about myself is my uh, determination. What characteristic do you value in other people? Honesty, for sure. More than anything, honesty. Uh, that's, that's it. I mean, that's a, that's a clear one for me. Uh, people can, I mean, everybody has faults and, uh, and I, I like, I like accepting the humanity of people, which means accepting their faults, uh, in my mind. Uh, but if they're not honest, I don't care to be around them. 
If you could travel back in time to any era, what time period would you want to live in? I'm an optimist, and I'll take this time period. Uh, and uh, the you know, to me, uh, I, that's just how I think about it. I think about well, this is what we have, and so I don't I don't wish I was somewhere else at another time. I, I'm I'm sure if I was in another time, I would find all of the things in that time that I could enjoy. Uh, and uh, help make my life rich, but um, but I don't envy any other times, and I'm happy with what I have here. What is a book that impacted your life, or that you would recommend to others? You know, the two books that come to mind. One is Aristotle's Ethics. Uh, that's the book. It's uh, the the book is called Ethics by Aristotle. Uh, and he talks about, it's a book about moral philosophy. He talks about what's it take to be a good person. Uh, and some of it's dated, but it had an impact on me. Another book that had an impact on me was another philosopher, uh, Montesquieu, uh, I, I believe is uh, how his name is described. And maybe I'm uh, forgetting now, but uh, he's got a book called Essays. And um, he's talking about, he, he uh, had cancer in the latter part of his life. And he wrote about the experience of, of uh having black urine and uh uh and and but he he was an upbeat uh uh constructive uh thoughtful person and um uh, so uh his his book had a big influence on my life as well if you could sit on a bench and have a deep discussion with anyone alive or dead who would it be and why i had a bit of a discussion which with such a person which was the Dalai Lama and it was uh, motivated by my wife uh, I asked my wife a very similar question once uh, we for some reason we were talking about if we could meet and talk with anybody who would we want to meet and talk with and she said the Dalai Lama and in my position as CEO of St. Jude Medical I had an opportunity to then go have a private audience with Dalai Lama. So my wife and I went and had a private audience with Dalai Lama. It was a fascinating experience. Uh, the, uh, we, we, we were able to listen to him talk in a large venue and then in a smaller venue and then in a private venue over a period of three days. Uh, and um, the, um, what, what people would ask him is they would ask him what, what was most important to him. You know, like people would be, and people were kind of thinking, you're the Dalai Lama, you must have answers to the mysteries of the universe. You know, not literally, but something like that. Uh, and his answer to what was most important to him was just very personal. What he said was most important to him and what he said he was most concerned about losing was his mindfulness. So very Buddhist, very personal mindfulness. He wants to, it, it's the meditation of being centered uh, uh, um, and having this sense of being, uh, that mindfulness uh, that, uh, and that he would, uh, and so every day, the key thing for him is to be mindful and not get drawn up into the, you know, or distracted or take out of perspective the mysteries of the world. And I'm sure that I don't have the education and experience to describe exactly what was so important to him about mindfulness. I've studied some Buddhism. I have a bit of a sense of what mindfulness means. So it's not just like a mystery altogether, but at the same time, uh, I would love to have him say more 
about what mindfulness is to him. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, people who study Buddhism, I mean, that's, I kind of think that's what they spend their whole life learning more about. So just exactly what is mindfulness and how deep does it go and how pervasive is it? And uh, so that would be something that would come to mind. Beautiful. What is one of the most important lessons that you've learned in a relationship? You know, again, it's so many things. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's just so many things. Uh, uh, honesty comes to mind right away. Uh, uh, openness comes to mind. Respectfulness comes to mind. The topic of, 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 uh, you know, when 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 I think of uh, respectfulness, I I think of you know, I think of it in, in, you know, multiple senses, but w uh, a mistake for anybody to make would be to think that, well, this marriage or relationship, you know, I'm talking about marriage, but a relationship, uh, this relationship is uh, all about what can I get from it? You know, a very selfish uh, uh, perspective. To, to me, then the point about uh, coming to the relationship saying, well, it's every bit as important to me to give as it is for me to receive and benefit would be a key thing that I've learned uh, in uh, that I would value in my uh, uh, most intimate relationships. What is a powerful piece of knowledge or advice that someone gave you that shifted your perception on life? we'll get through it. That's it. We'll get through it. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, they, there's a lot of different ways to articulate that, but no matter how challenging something is at the time, we'll get through it. And it's almost like another articulation of that would be to say, it's always darkest just before the dawn. You know, we'll get through it. Uh, looking really black around here, but dawn's going to come. Uh, and so uh, no matter how bad something is, it'll pass. No matter how bad something is, it'll change. Now, it, you know, if, you're, if the bad thing is the death of somebody, well, that's not going to pass. That's going to stay. But it'll change. The, the loss, uh, the response to that person's death will change. Uh, it isn't going to be. It's totally devastating right now. I don't know if I can go on. It'll change. We'll get through it. And... Uh, uh, so that would be it, is the, the idea. It's that optimism. Is the glass half full or is it half empty? Uh, the glass is half full. Uh, we have, there's a lot of good things here. This one is really bad. This one is not going to define us. Uh, we'll get through it. What is your definition of success, and what did it take for you to arrive at that definition? Well, I'd say definition of success is to be happy. Uh, you know, be happy as much as uh, one can be. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, and to me, the, my, my, my pathway through the labyrinth to get to a state where uh, I, uh, I have a general, you know, more often than not, you know, my, my, my general state of being is one of contentment you know, general state of being. So yeah, I get in a bad mood and I have, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, I'll get angry about something, but generally 
I'm feeling good about myself. I'm feeling good about life. I'm uh, looking forward. I'm thinking to myself, man, this is good. Life is good. And uh, I'm thinking I'm 67 years old. I'm thinking I'd like to have this continue on for a long time. If I'm dead uh, in a car accident tomorrow, that's okay. I mean, I can't do anything about it, number one, but number two, that's okay. I've, uh, I've, I've had a really good life uh, and I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I would like to keep doing this. Uh, it's like, how much, how much more good and fun stuff can I do going forward? How long will my health hold out? Uh, you know, how long will my energy levels stay up? Uh, uh, um, I hope we don't have a nuclear war. Uh, you know, just all those kinds of things. I mean, it's like a, uh, it's a, it's a good life. And, uh, uh, you know, but, but this point about, um, uh, I, I would define success as happiness. And when I think of happiness, I think of uh, having a sense of contentment more often than not. That to me is happiness and success. Do you have a daily mantra or philosophy on life? I don't have a mantra, but I. what comes to mind when you ask me is we don't get this day over. Every day, we get once and I waste days but I tell myself there's only so many days and I don't want to waste this one and that kind of comes back to I'm having fun I'm enjoying I'm happy I want more days of happiness now if I want more days of happiness it's not a matter of wishful thinking how long am I going to live it's a matter of well I've got today what am I going to do with it so that you know make you know, it's a cliche a little bit, make the most out of each day, but that, that would be what comes to mind when you ask me that question. Why do you think we are here as a human species? It's a profound question. I'm not a religious person. Uh, I kind of, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to think about that. So uh, there, there is one existential level to think about it where I'd say, I'm not sure that we're here for a reason. I'm not sure that we're not here because of just a lot of different molecules and chemicals and serendipitous combinations and lots of the universe doesn't have us there that had a different combination of events that led to the state of being in other parts of the universe. You know, so on the one hand, I'm not sure that with me not being a religious person, I'm not sure there's a reason there is an existential reason that we're here. I'm not sure of that. But so then it's a matter of, and if you start with that, which I do start with, then it's a question of, so what uh, reason am I going to create for why I'm here? And, and to me, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, to, uh, you know, it's everything that we've been talking about, about what makes a full life. Uh, I don't know why we're here, but I'm going to make the best of it. Uh, and, um, uh, and, uh, I'd like, and I get plenty of reward out of, uh, giving to other people as well as you know, a lot of my sense of self-satisfaction is in uh, helping other people you know genuinely not in a superficial way uh, and uh, so to me those are all among the reasons we're here I want to have the best life I can and whatever I can do within reason for the people I choose uh, uh, to help them have the best life they can that to me is the reason we're here if reincarnation is real what animal would you want to be in your next life? I'm just happy being me. So I'd be another human animal. animal. I, uh, I mean, again, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm, yeah. not wishing, I'm not wishing I was a tiger or a snail. You know, I mean, I'm uh, really happy. Who would want to be a snail? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Tiger's attractive. Uh, I'll tell you what. Well, uh, I, I'd, uh, if I was going to have to be anybody's uh, animal, if I was going to have to be an animal, not a human, I'd want to be one of my wife's dogs. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> well said. What, what is one quote that has resonated profoundly with you? There's, well, there is a quote. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, a little bit of a slogan, but a slogan is a quote. And it's something that my wife uh, has posted around the house. And it's to the effect of the purpose of life is not to slide in at the end with a well-preserved body, but to slide in saying, holy shit, what a ride. Uh, that to me is a quote that means something, you know, and, and I, I don't have the verbatims are exactly right, you know, but the point is, you know, don't go along in life uh, uh, just kind of mediocre, you know, don't go along in life vanilla, go, on, go along, capture it. And, uh, and, and by the time your life is over, if you haven't given it everything you have to give it, shame on you. That's how I understand that quote. And so that's a meaningful quote to me. Uh, uh, take everything you can, get everything you can out of your life and, uh, and uh, don't save it for later because there isn't a later. What is one of the most powerful investments that you've made with no money? Two things come to mind, maybe three things. Uh, one would be education. Now, education costs money, so maybe, you know, but, but uh, the education, investing in education, uh, my, my doing the work to become educated to the extent I have has been, uh, has just been wonderful, tremendously valuable. And um, so that, that would be, that's what, it, that's the single most thing that comes to mind. I, I know, you know, the other things that come to mind would be relationships, investing in relationships, uh, both my marriage and uh, my, my daughter. If there is one word that sets your soul on fire, what word would that be? It's passion. If you had a chance to meet your younger self as a child and share a piece of wisdom of what you now have learned to be true in life, what wisdom would you want to give to your younger self? I tell my younger self, don't worry, you'll be fine. Can you explain now that you've come this far in life, um, what does the new labyrinth or chapter look like for you? Well, I'm looking forward to continuing to expand what I'm going to leave behind that contributes to the, to maintaining the level of freedom we have in this country and that contributes to maintaining the standard of living that we have in this country. And so when I think of level of freedom and standard of living, that to me ties back to the mission of our museum to educate next generations on the history of American freedom. There, there, uh, you know, there's a quote, I forget who the quote's from, there's a quote to the effect of, uh, uh, we're just one generation away from losing our freedom. And it's, uh, so there's there's nothing there's nothing that's on autopilot here for us to maintain the quality of life, maintain the standard of living that ties to me to maintain the level of freedom that we have, maintain our national security. All of those things are what we have to do to, uh, you know, that's that's what I have to do 
for you to enjoy what I've been able to enjoy and then for your your next generation to enjoy what you currently are enjoying. And so to me, uh, I, I've got a good starting point. You know, there's only so much one person can do, right? So I'm not thinking I'm the guy uh, making that difference, but I can make a bit of a difference. And so I'm making a bit of a difference with the program. It's not the museum itself. It's the program. It's the content. It's all the messages and the education from the museum. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to do more of that. And part of then that uh, doing more of it and building, you know, you might call it a legacy from that selfish perspective, building more of a legacy is that also gives me an opportunity to, uh, to help create opportunities for, you know, to help mentor, to help create opportunities for people that are helping to build the legacy of the museum. Uh, so that's a, you know, I get, I get enjoyment out of that. I get enjoyment out of helping young people uh, uh, go through the learning curve that I went through and, uh, and uh, help mature themselves into their own level of happiness. And so, you know, to me, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hitting uh, multiple birds with, with the stone in continuing to build this program that's out there at the museum location. Amazing. To our audience and the people listening, how can they get involved or provide support for your cause? The best thing, what I would appreciate most from anybody so motivated would be to have them come visit the museum and have them tell others about the museum. The, the, so the, the, the cause in my mind is to become more educated. That's the cause. And the best way, so the cause is not money or donations or, you know, the cause is just take advantage of this education. There's something here that you're not going to get anywhere else. And we, you know, right now the investment, what, what, what we've, what uh, my wife and I have invested to create this education is a hundred million dollars. We're continuing to invest. We're continuing to expand the, the education that is offered here. But what, you know, the, the most gratifying thing to me, the most beneficial thing to me would be to be able to impact more people. And the best way to impact people is to have them visit the museum and experience the education that we offer inside it. Or if they uh, aren't interested or can't visit themselves, pass the word along so that as many people as want to find out about the museum and have an opportunity to, vi to visit the museum again with the idea that museum is kind of the wrong word. Uh, the, the better word is visit the education, experience the education. That's, that's what people can do to help, uh, help contribute. When you think of a great leader, who is the first person that comes to your mind? I'm thinking I need to you know, the, your, your question was first person that comes to my mind uh, rather than uh, asking me to really think it through and think uh, who would be uh, a leader that I would put as a, as a top uh, leader. With my military history bent, one of the first people that comes to my mind is probably not who I would settle on with more thought, but one of the first people who comes to my mind is George Washington and not George Washington had lots of blemishes uh, in his personal life and uh, in his legacy, but he did some things that were selfless and that uh, were wonderful to kick off what we've experienced as a country for these last uh, however many years. 
and and so I give him credit for doing some key things right, including not staying on to serve a third third term as president. There was no prohibition, and people wanted him to stay on, and he voluntarily stepped aside, saying he didn't want to be a king, and that a crown would only hurt his head, and uh, he thought the right thing for the country was for him to step aside and and start the precedent that uh, that nobody is entitled to any role or to any leadership role, and this needs to be transitioned on a regular basis. And I think that was just a wonderful contribution to make to the history of American freedom. That, that that's what that's that's what I would give him the most credit for is stepping aside when it was time, and that's why he comes to mind when you ask me that question. Excellent. What does a leader's labyrinth represent to you? I would say a very meaningful depiction of the course of a human life. That's what I would say. The uh, and and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we all can make our plans, and we can all uh, have in mind what life is gonna be like. My experience is, life was. Uh, had all kinds of unexpected twists and turns and opportunities and doors open and doors close, all that kind of thing. And so to me, I mean, I never expected, I never expected to have the life that I've had. And that to me is what a labyrinth uh, describes. This is the part of the show where I ask a hypothetical question to our leader. This is called messages to mankind. And the question is this, if the whole world had stopped only to listen to one message from you and you are reaching every single human being on the planet and no matter where they are in the world, they can all understand you. And you got to carry forward one message to all of humanity to help make an impact. What would be your message to mankind? I'd say we all matter. That's my message. We all matter. Beautiful. Beautiful. Mr. Dan Starks, I want to, honor you for sharing your spirit, your heart, and your wisdom with us today, for expanding the reach of medical devices to save lives of those in critical, critical condition all over the world, for making history by giving back to our country, our veterans, and for the world by building the National Museum of Military Vehicles. You've emerged as a leader of global positive influence, transformation, humility, courage, and service. So thank you for helping us make a better world and for joining us in the labyrinth. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us in the labyrinth today with our leader, Dan Starks. To see Dan in action, you may find him conducting the tours personally at the National Museum of Military Vehicles in Du Bois, Wyoming. You may learn more about the National Museum of Military Vehicles at nmmv.org. We hope that you are exiting the labyrinth with a heightened sense of leadership, ambition, and a desire to implement these tools to enrich your quality of life. Embrace the challenges ahead, for the top of one mountain is the bottom of another. Don't skip any steps, for the quickest way to success is to go slowly. Awaken the leader within, and remember to ignite 
your light.